Welcome to Dip Your Toes Into Carmel, the podcast of the semi-province of St. Therese. Walk with us today as we consider introductory reflections on the Theresian Carmelite School of Spirituality by Father Sam Anthony Morello. The following reflections were originally given as a conference to the students of Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana, on April 7, 2008. Let me begin with the names Carmel and Carmelites. Carmel comes from the Hebrew, which means orchard or garden. Mount Carmel is not just a fertile mountain. It is a forested garden-like mountain range, roughly 15 miles long in northwest Israel, rising about 2,000 feet and having only one interruption, the Megiddo Pass. At the top of this steep, natural formation is a lighthouse, along with our Carmelite monastery, shrine, and hospice called Stella Maris, or Star of the Sea. The prophets Elijah and Elisha are of course associated with Carmel. From the first and second books of Kings, it is easy to conclude that these two ninth-century prophets spent periods of time along the mountain range of Carmel. Moreover, Carmel's terrain served well the school of prophets to which Elijah and Elisha belonged. Medieval Carmelite mythology definitely stretched its imagination in claiming Elijah as the order's historical founder, calling him father and leader of Carmelites. They then considered Elisha the second head of the school of prophets. It was from these two epic giants and their prophetic school that Carmelites thus claimed to have sprung. Though this notion was a grievous exaggeration, it reflected the spiritual Elysian tradition that gave the prayer of the medieval Carmel its deep sense of solitude treasured to this day. Carmelite prayer struggles to obtain a desert heart, one seeking only God's word and kingdom, and predisposing the self for God's gentle breeze of divine contemplation, so as to know the living God more directly and serve to bolster fidelity to Him among the people of God. The hermits who came to the Middle East with the late 12th century French crusaders, along with their successors who in time migrated back to Europe, intuited for themselves a prophetic contemplative vocation in imitation of Elijah that conditioned them to witness to their prayerful experiences of the living God, and then call back to God those who needed realignment, just as had done the ancient Christian hermits of Egypt, Palestine, and Syria before them. And it was these medieval Latin hermits of Carmel who, 
once having returned to Western Europe, eventually evolved into a band of mendicant friars and initiated the Carmelite school of spirituality. Now let me interject a word on schools of spirituality in general. We need to appreciate that any school of Christian spirituality sits under the great umbrella of the Gospel and its custodian, the Catholic Church. From the Church, we learn all the basics of the Christian religion and its spirituality, the authentic sources of revelation, the supernatural goals of faith, all the prudent means and methods to be employed in attaining these goals, and the laws and rhythms of spiritual development. So, whenever a school of spirituality is proposed, look for what is basically baptismal in character, which is to say how it spells out a detailed discipleship of Jesus Christ. In the primitive rule of Carmel by Albert, Patriarch of Jerusalem, dated roughly around 1210, the goal of the spiritual life is seen as a life lived in allegiance to Jesus Christ, pure in heart, stout in conscience, and unswerving in the service of the Master. Note that early in the Carmelite mind, Though we see flanking Jesus Christ, who must always be kept at the center, two great founding figures or presences, that of Elijah to one side and the Virgin Mary to the other. Elijah was their spiritual founder, as I spoke about earlier, but Mary also appears as their patroness and companion. At one of Carmel's many mountain gorges, a chapel was built by the primitive Carmelites, which they named Santa Maria. The hermits thereby came to be known as the Brothers of St. Mary of Carmel, the first order named for the Mother of God. They honored her as Mother, as Royal Lady of the Place, and as Sister in the Spirit. Mary and Elijah strengthened the hermits' allegiance to Jesus Christ. The faith of their sister Mary, her prayer life, and social virtues fortified their perseverance, while Elijah and his prophetic experience inspired them to be zealous witnesses of the living God and servants of covenant fidelity among the people. Once you have detected the basic vocation of a given school of spirituality, Analyze its social and ecclesial aspects, what we call its witness or mission, the sources of its zeal, its works of mercy, its specific charisms and ministries, and so forth. The ordained ministries and the vowed religious life can never be divorced from their fundamental grounding in discipleship. Thus, what a particular school's emphasizes in discipleship is usually transferred into the ecclesial realm as charism and service. Everything done by a Christian is ultimately rooted in baptism.
So we need to keep in mind always that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount necessarily serve as the basis for the moral and spiritual life of any Christian school of spirituality. Now, what a particular school of spirituality does is emphasize certain means towards the two inseparable goals of personal holiness and universal salvation. Carmel Spirit set forth in the early rule, together with daily Eucharist, which was very rare for hermits at that time, although it is called for in the rule as well, primarily emphasized the practice of silence, recollection, and private prayer as a broad opening to evangelizing grace and transforming contemplation. Consequently, on the ecclesial level, Carmel weighs in heavily in favor of teaching others the ways of prayer. Its basic hermit soul emerges in the arena of the apostolate of spirituality. Building on the original Carmelite school of spirituality then, the Theresian Carmelite school grew out of the charisms of Saints Teresa of Jesus and John of the Cross who lived at the time of the Counter-Reformation in 16th century Spain. This school cultivated a kind of phenomenology of meditative and contemplative prayer, especially for use in spiritual direction. It helped persons, one, understand their experience of supernatural faith as a foundation for prayer, two, fathom ever more deeply the progressive stages of light and darkness through which their prayer unfolds as a spiritual journey of ascent to God, and three, integrate their prayerful discipleship with ecclesial life and mission. Let me interject here another note on schools of spirituality in general. Every school continues to develop as long as it lasts. To paraphrase Peter Thomas Rohrbark, author of a fine history of Carmel in English entitled Journey to Carith, Any school of spirituality is a chain of complementary biographies through which the gospel has been historically filtered, all for the enrichment of a particular tradition within the church, and through it, the good of the church as a whole. Like theological and philosophical ideas, schools of spirituality continue to develop. Carmel, for example, is amazed at the staggering influence on our own tradition that St. Therese of the Child Jesus and St. Edith Stein have exerted. And in other orders and schools of spirituality, development has dramatically continued since the closing of the Second Vatican Council with their ensuing general chapters of renewal and intense, ongoing reflection. We now return to the Theresian Carmelite School of Spirituality. To know something real about the Theresian School is to be encouraged in practical ways to pray simply and effectively from the heart over the substantial sources of spirituality, namely scripture, liturgy, the teaching of the magisterium, like the documents of Vatican II and the Catechism, and the great time-tested spiritual classics. Here, prayer 
and education obviously go hand in hand. The educated mind under grace balances heart and viscera. Carmel especially educates us to employ the theological virtues while at prayer because they are the mainsprings of direct intimacy with God. It is faith, hope, and charity that feed prayer and propel us towards conformity of the will to God's. And we clearly learn from Carmel the legitimacy of an explicit desire for contemplation as a shortcut to the development of a mature faith and trust that led to a true self-donation. This desire predisposes us to receive an infused loving gaze that then focuses the spiritual appetite on God as our supreme good and transforming agent, the source of all ecclesial good and the hope of universal humanity. Now let us enter the interior castle of St. Teresa, Doctor of the Church. Consider some attractive teachings of St. Teresa of Jesus, the 16th century Castilian Spanish founder of the Discoused Carmelites. We depend here on two of her major works, The Way of Perfection and The Interior Castle. Presupposing our graced and often clumsy efforts at the acquisition of the moral virtues, Teresa leads us into the soul's mansions where God resides as indwelling Trinity, and where the mediating Christ awaits us as friend, teacher, and guide. For Teresa, Jesus Christ is always the way, the truth, and the life always and everywhere. By holding on to the coattails of Jesus Christ, one sails into the kingdom of God. Well known is the fact that Teresa greatly advocated mental prayer. Whether we pray with prefabricated formulas, vocal prayer, or spontaneously, we need to be intentionally present to what we are saying. Moreover, we need to be attentive to our own neediness and mindful of the dignity of the one we address. Teresa shows how this can be done either with formulas or by simple intuition or through mere desire. Her prayer is more effective than anything else, for as she put it, The important thing is not to think much but to love much. As a matter of fact, the very reason for thinking is to stir oneself to love. In her spiritual autobiography, the saint describes mental prayer as a matter of friendship, as an intimate sharing between friends. It means often taking time to be alone with the one we know loves us. Here, Teresa reflects John, the beloved disciple, profoundly conscious that prayer and the whole Christian life is a response to the one who has loved us first. Since, for Teresa, prayer is a matter of friendship, she found her joy in the company of Jesus Christ. She explains that when we pray, we are alone, and so we need Christ as a friend. Furthermore, 
Since we do not know how to pray, we need Christ as a teacher. And because we are challenged to virtue, we need Christ as a guide and exemplar of all virtue, especially humility, which is the foundation of spirituality. Humility, Teresa famously says, is simply walking in the truth. Dwelling on Christ's own humility, then, we gently make an interior examine, as Ignatius also taught, and gain self-knowledge. And with self-knowledge, we grow in charity, for we are less defensive before the truth and the demands of love. As a matter of fact, for Teresa, humility in oneself is the flip side of genuine charity towards others. Until Teresa discovered the prayer of recollection, she confesses that she did not find much satisfaction or staying power at prayer. Furthermore, she found that this type of prayer, the prayer of recollection, opened her up to greater intimacy with God because it is so effective and simple in nature. And lastly, it proved to be the best predisposition for the reception of contemplation, or simply put, passive prayer. In at least three separate works, her list of contemplative phenomena in the practice of prayer begins with what is today called the passive prayer of recollection. And do not doubt that Teresa positively encouraged the explicit personal desire for contemplation. We do not speak of a desire for special experience. With holy indifference, our motive in desiring contemplation is that contemplation is a shortcut to the maturity of the theological virtues in us. This is Teresa's explicit thought. The theological virtues, after all, directly address us to and find their rest in the transcendent God as their proper object. And the same is true of contemplative prayer. Despite the natural distractions we are all prone to, Teresa was convinced that anyone who disciplined himself or herself for even six months in order to learn this prayer of recollection will acquire the habit of a simplified mental prayer sustained by the Word of God. Speaking from her own personal experience and from her experience of directing her sisters in the cloister, Teresa saw that within a short time of cultivating this focus, the bees of contemplation enter into prayer and make honey without any effort on our own. Here she is speaking of the very first type of contemplation known to her. It is an infused sense of God's presence that creates an ideal condition for the person to exercise his or her faculties in meditation of a very simple and effective sort. And then, in time, this infused sense to God's presence sometimes opens up and becomes an inner quietude, a stillness of the soul in which the will is taken hold of by God and fed as only God can feed the spiritual appetite. The will tastes God, its ultimate good and rest, 
and begins to move away from satisfactions that are not God, seeking more and more an interior, effective solitude. This reminds me of St. John of the Cross's concept of solitude. Solitude is the soul's desire for God alone, and the absence of desire for what is not God. For John of the Cross, prayer is basically the desire for God. This is truly the heart alone in the desert with Christ, the effect intent on leaving behind, in spite of ourselves, all inordinate attachments to persons, places, and things. Here is the beginning of an authentic charity and an emerging freedom of spirit, the love of God for God's sake, the love of neighbor for God's sake, and the love of neighbor and things in God to the betterment of everybody and everything. In conclusion, my patient friends, the Lord of Recollection knocks at the door. If you open to him, he will come in to your house, sit down at the table, and have supper with you. Amen. For further reflections on the spirituality of Carmel, visit our website at carmelitefriarsocd.org. Thank you for listening to Dip Your Toes Into Carmel. Be sure to follow our socials to find out about other opportunities to grow in your faith. References can be found in our show notes. Until next time.